Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer in Tel Aviv. Violence and terror are in the news in Israel this week. An Israeli was killed in the heart of Tel Aviv Saturday evening by a Palestinian shooter. But the headlines have really been dominated by settler violence in the West Bank. Two Israeli settlers were arrested for the killing of a 19-year-old Palestinian during clashes between armed settlers and residents of the central West Bank village of Burqa on Friday night. On Sunday, five Palestinians were arrested for their part in the incident in which settlers were also wounded. This all leads us to ask, while Israel has been focused on the fight against the judicial overhaul and dreaming of peace with Saudi Arabia, what exactly has been going on in its own backyard, right beyond the Green Line? And how has Israel's most right-wing pro-settler government in history been dealing with it? Hagar Shazaf, our very own Haaretz West Bank correspondent, is here to fill us in and explain. Hi, Hagar. Welcome to the show. Hi. Let's begin with the settler violence. What exactly happened in Burqa on Friday night? Or maybe I should be asking you, what are the different versions of what happened in Burqa on Friday night? What we know for a fact is that there were clashes between uh, settlers and Palestinians that occurred in agricultural land in Burqa. These are lands that are between 300 to 500 meters from the village's uh, houses themselves. And they ended with a dead Palestinian who was shot dead by one of the settlers. And the main suspect in the shooting is currently hospitalized with severe injury to the head uh, from a stone that was thrown at him. So these are the facts. The versions uh, vary uh, as how things exactly evolved. I was yesterday in Burka and I spoke to multiple uh, witnesses and to the victim's family. And what they say is that the event started around 6.30 p.m. on Friday. And according to the Palestinians, it started when a Palestinian shepherd was grazing in lands that are a bit farther. The settlement claim that it started with Palestinians attacking a settler, shepherd. So that is a point that we are not sure of. An important thing to note is that Bulka uh, is a village that is surrounded by Israeli outposts. And at least three of them are from the most extreme and violent end of settler outposts. What Israelis call hilltop youth? What Israel calls hilltop youth, though, when you see the ages of the suspects, they are not youth. They are between uh, 20 and 28. So according to the Palestinians, it started um, with a Palestinian who was grazing the land. Then settlers came and uh, attacked them with stones. And the Palestinians basically reported back to a WhatsApp group of the village saying, settlers are here, come. Then more people came from both sides. And at the height of the event, there were a couple dozens of uh, both Palestinians and settlers. I think numbers are around between 100 and 200 to each side. And um, one of the, the Palestinians who came to help and according to him, tried to uh, gather the sheep that were kind of scattered, uh, came with a car. When he got out of the car, his car was um, set on fire by the settlers. I was there yesterday at the scene. 
the car is still there. He said he had his phone there as well. It was obviously burned down. And the whole scene got closer to the village. And the clashes and, the, you know, the events lasted for around an hour and a half or two hours around that time. And at about 8 p.m., a settler shot Kusai, who is the 19-year-old Palestinian uh, who was killed. According to Palestinians, uh, he was shot from a distance of between 20 meters to maybe 100 meters at most. And his brother, whom I spoke with, said that at the time he was shot, they were actually kind of turning around to go home and he was shot as he was, you know, kind of wanting to, to get home, basically. I think both sides are saying that they threw stones at each other. But there's like a competition for the victim narrative of who is the aggressor and who is the victim? Yeah, I mean, according to Palestinian witnesses, uh, the sellers started shooting uh, from quite early, earlier than when Kusai was killed. Um, but, you know, no one was hurt at first. And the shooting continued also after he was killed. I think, you know, there are a couple of questions. Uh, one of them would be, at what stage did uh, the settler who is suspected of shooting Kusai, and the settler is called uh, Yechiel Indor, at what point was he injured? Was he injured before he shot Kusai or after he shot Kusai? Palestinians claim it was after settlers claim that it was before. Uh, there's a question there because he was severely injured. There's a question of how would he um, succeed in shooting afterwards, but, you know, it's unclear. Uh, and the last time I checked, uh, the police didn't have an answer for that yet. One of the settlers who was arrested is not your typical settler, right? He's a high-profile figure. Right. So after the event, two settlers were arrested. They were actually at first seven who were detained, but then only two were actually arrested. One of them, as I said, is the main suspect in the shooting itself. Uh, he's actually from a fra, a nearby settlement, not considered to be part of what we call a hilltop youth. Remote outpost with very few people exactly. living Exactly. Yeah. So he's actually not considered to be part of that group, even though he was there. So, I mean, I don't know. When do you, when do you qualify to be a hilltop youth? <laughs> That's a question, I guess. And uh, the other uh, suspect who was arrested is a very high-profile settler. His name is Elisha Yered. He is at the begin beginning of his 20s. Um, until very recently, he was spokesperson for Knesset uh, member Limor Son Harmelech, who's from Otsma Yehudit party, which is Ben Gvir's party. And Elisha is a very, very outspoken, extremely extreme uh, seller. And he even today is some sort of considered to be like an unofficial spokesperson for the Hilltop Youth. Elisha is uh, originally from Itzhar, which is, I think, the most well-known settlement uh, for its extremism. It's very close to Nablus, very close to Hawara, and attacks uh, of Hawara very often are, are originating from Itzhar or the outposts around it. Um, and he's actually from a quite well-known extreme right family. And Elisha Yared himself lives in another outpost that surrounds Burqa. People there know him by name, know him, uh, you know, they 
kept showing me his picture uh, and telling all sorts of story about him and about the sellers in his outpost. So to understand, I think, what happened in Bulka, I mean, of course, understanding the event itself and, you know, the details is very important. But I think it's, import- it's important to understand that the outposts around it, the sellers who live there have very publicly, you know, declared a war uh, on uh, the lands surrounding Bulka and the people of Bulka. Well, people are pointing to the fact that they were carrying, you know, the petrol, the, you know, flammable liquid with them. They're pointing out that this was on the eve of the Sabbath, which, you know, why were they there? Uh, there, there are a lot of signs that point to a narrative of something more organized and planned than the other side. Yeah, I mean, and when I was in Bulka yesterday, the number of stories that I heard of kind of similar incidents that didn't end up in a dead Palestinian, a killed Palestinian, but, you know, of, you know, the settlers um, cultivating private Palestinian land, or I was told of a shepherd who was basically ran away from where he used to, like, graze his sheep just, like, a few days before because settlers intimidated him in the middle of the night. And, you know, another person, the uncle of uh, the killed Palestinian, told me that just a couple of months ago, he went around the village, just like, you know, going on a hike for sport. And he claimed that Elisha came with a car and started basically intimidating him. So, you know, it is important to talk about the specific incident, but it's within a context of, you know, this village that is surrounded by outpost and it's private land is threatened again and again. So understanding the fact that it happened near the village in its agricultural land and that you have outposts there that, you know, their their statement is that they are trying to take over land because they believe that all of the West Bank is, um, you know, for the Jewish people. The sellers are now, the both, both uh, suspects are claiming self-defense if you only look at the very specific question of was it self-defense, wasn't it self-defense, I think, I mean... There's reasonable doubt, maybe. Yeah, there's reasonable reasonable doubt, but then you have to look at it at the broader context of really what were they doing there, the sellers? And the answer is very simple. Again, they're not hiding it. They're publicly saying that, so... So, Hagar, how does this fit into some sort of longer-term pattern of settler aggression, of violent incidents? Over the winter and the spring, there were a string of highly publicized clashes, settler violence, in Hoara, in a place called Turmas Aya, which got a lot of publicity in the U.S. because there were many U.S. citizens uh, living there, dual Palestinian U.S. citizens, and a village called Um Safa. What was the aftermath of these previous incidents? Were any of these perpetrators arrested, charged? How is it following up there? And do you see what happened in Burqa now as just another link in the chain of, uh, of this trend? So, yeah, so we had uh, in recent months uh, the attack on Hawara, uh, which was larger in scale than anything I have seen before. I have been a uh, West Bank reporter for almost four years now. And, you know, it was big in scale and homes were burned, uh, cars were burned. And the whole attack, uh, you know, took 
a number of hours, even though the military's, uh, one of the military's like uh, headquarters is five minutes away from Hawara, um, it took the Israeli security forces a really long time to get there. Uh, and we had footage showing that, you know, there were some security forces at the scene at the time. But, you know, it didn't, it, they didn't stop it for hours and hours. So following that attack, there were, sellers were arrested, but the big uh, rampage uh, didn't result in any indictments, but rather sellers were put in administrative detention. I will note that a couple of days after the big events, there was another event where uh, two settlers attacked a Palestinian family uh, with an ex while they were sitting in a car. In that an incident, which was documented very well because it was under basically a CCTV camera owned by a supermarket, that was burned just a couple of days before uh, <laughs> because of the last uh, seller attack. So that camera actually caught the attack very well and indictments were submitted for two settlers in that attack. But the main attack didn't result in any in any indictments. Um, then, a little more than a month ago, uh, there was a string of settler attacks that were following the Ali attack, where a Palestinian assailant killed four Israeli settlers. Two of these settlers lived in outposts, and so the calls for revenge... Uh, were heard both in the funeral and you still see today posters around the West Bank with their photos, with their pictures calling for revenge. So the recent attacks, uh, the recent string of attacks uh, resulted in uh, one indictment um, for uh, Um Safa um, and another indictment or another two indictments for um uh, an attack that happened in in Urif, which is very close to Itzhar, once again, um, where uh, sellers got into a mosque and also took out Quran books and um, damaged them, basically. So we had three indictments, even though we know that in most of these attacks you had dozens of sellers who took part, and the attacks are involved setting things on fire which means you have to plan in advance. It's not, you know, very often what you have is stone attacks, right? People throwing stones, either sellers or Palestinians. These sort of attacks are, they don't have to be planned because all you have is to pick up a stone. When you are setting houses on fire and uh, and cars on fire, and again, to, in, in a large, large extent, because Turmus Aya was... I think it was a shorter amount of time. The whole attack didn't take that long and the military arrived there after too long, but they did arrive at a certain point. Um, but the extent of the damage was huge also. And it was in the middle of the day. It wasn't even at night. I think that was something because I arrived to Turumus Aya just, I think, like half an hour after the attack happened because I was around because it was kind of clear that something will happen, right? And, you know, just seeing in, like, broad daylight, you know, the, the, the damage of, like, houses burned, property burned, windows shattered. I mean, 
you know, just to think about what it requires, um, daring, just the, the fact that they dare to go into a village in broad daylight, obviously not thinking or believing that there will be consequences. And <laughs> this uh, assessment proves itself. So we've got revenge attacks and we've got this sort of ongoing tension of who controls the land, these like turf wars, that those two factors seem to be what is, you know, under the umbrella of settler violence. And it sounds like sometimes it's really hard to distinguish one from the other. Am I right? Right. I mean, maybe I use the term revenge attacks, but I think, you know, when you're talking about the situation here, everything is a revenge. I mean, I think sometimes we call you know, seller attacks revenge, but then maybe the Palestinian assailant who, you know, murdered the four settlers did it as a revenge for, something you know, else. something else. I mean, because so many Palestinians were killed by Israeli military in recent years. So, I mean, how can you distinguish the two things? Pivoting to our government, our current government. It includes senior ministers, including Itamar Ben-Gvir, who's in charge of national security, who not only condone aggression by the settlers, but have participated in similar, if not exact, behaviors in the past. Um, Ben-Gvir said yesterday that anyone who defends himself from stone throwing should receive a commendation. He's talking about these uh, settlers who were charged. He has a right-hand man called Hanamel uh, Dorfman, who's also very associated with, uh, with extreme settler activity. How does having a government like this, a minister in charge of national security, with this guy as his top aide, how does it affect the situation on the ground? You say you've been doing this for four years. Do you feel as if the current perpetrators or participants on the settler side are emboldened by the fact that this government is in power? Yes, of course. Um, you left out Smotrich, and I think Smotrich is a very important... Betzalel Smotrich, who's our Minister of Finance with responsibilities in the Defense Ministry. As right, well. so he has like a dual role, he's Finance Minister, and then he's like a second minister in the Defense Ministry. And the responsibilities he received is basically around everything that has to do with settler life. In the West Bank, a lot of it has to do with uh, construction and outposts. So he's the person in charge. Now, Smotrich himself lives in Kdumim, you, which is a settlement. Uh, you mentioned Hanam El Dorfman. He lives in an outpost very close to Turmus Aya, by the way. Um, and Itmar Bengvir, of course, lives in Kiryat Arba, uh, which is, you know, the settlement uh, near Hebron. And actually, he lives in a, in a neighborhood that is actually a bit disconnected from the settlement itself and is really inside proper Hebron. Now, what happened on Friday is a very good example of how um, Smotrich and the government affects uh, settler violence. And I'll explain. Before the current government, outposts around Burka used to be evacuated every once in a while. Evacuated by Israeli authorities because they were technically illegal yes, settlements. because they're yeah. illegal settlements. Um, and they're not only illegal settlements because you have a lot of illegal settlements, but again, because these outposts 
are identified with hilltop youth, which are very often seen by the authorities and sometimes even by certain settlers as perpetrators of violence and, you know, people who cause tension. And so since the government, this government um, was formed and Smotrich became in charge of evictions, of construction in Area C, in the West Bank in general, Every eviction of Israeli cellar construction is basically approved by him. And what we know is that in recent months, the civil administration, which is the body in charge of evictions, actually tried to carry out evictions and was blocked every time. So what you have in recent months is Ozion, the outpost that is close to Burka, became larger, has more construction. They became emboldened. Uh, they became closer to Burka as well. So obviously, you know, the whole situation is affected by that. And then you have, as you mentioned, you mentioned Benville saying that, you know, the sellers should be praised for what they did. I mean, you are the minister who is in charge of the police. The investigation is still ongoing. And another point, when Um Safa attack happened, in a, quite a, an unusual step, I would say, the regional commander of the area, we call him Achat bin Yamin, uh, actually came to the closest settlement afterward that same evening and kind of conducted a checkpoint there in order to try and detain suspects. That's a very unusual step. Um, and then, very shortly after, you had Smotrich, Ben Gvir, Son Harmelech, you know, basically saying that there was a siege on the settlement and that, you know, it's not, shouldn't be done, etc., etc. No, there was no siege on the settlement. There was basically a very, very temporary checkpoint trying to detain suspects. And that commander was under, uh, you know, a campaign of hatred. His phone number uh, was uh, sent out to people and people sent him messages. Now, I... I'm a very, you know, I'm a criticizer of the lack of action by the military and by the Israeli police. I don't think that they have motivation to, or that they think really that they should investigate these things. But then you have one commander who's doing this thing, and he has basically all of the establishment against him. It sends a very clear message that he shouldn't be doing that. So yeah. It affects very much. Before this wave of violence, the focus, which I want to talk about briefly, was on a settlement called Chomesh, which was affected by the disengagement law, which was passed in the Knesset under this government, which basically paves the way for the reestablishment of uh, settlements that were evacuated in 2005 as uh, part of uh, Ariel Sharon's disengagement plan. Where does Chomesh stand right now? What happened during this government uh, is really that the Basically, they started canceling the disengagement, right? The disengagement, like you said, in an event in 2005 when uh, Israeli sellers were evicted from the Gaza Strip. 
But also there were a couple of settlements in the northern West Bank that were evicted as well. This was actually because of a promise that the Israelis made to the American administration, that it's a sort of promise that Sharon made to the American administration. And that's why they were, they were uh, evacuated. They were evacuated, but also a law was set in place saying basically that Israelis are not allowed to enter the areas from which the settlements were evicted. This law was changed in this government. And by the way, Limor Son Harmelech, she was actually a resident of Chomesh before the disengagement and, you know, was very active in, in kind of, uh, you know, canceling basically this law. Chomesh was built on private Palestinian land, owned by sellers uh, from the near village, which is called Burka as well. Not the same Burka. There are two Burkas. Burka from the Friday attack is near Ramallah. This one is near Nablus. So residents of Burka actually submitted years ago, I think it was in 2019, a petition to the high court basically saying, okay, the disengagement happened, but there is still an outpost because very quickly after the disengagement happened, sellers came back there and they set up this outpost on the private land, uh, which they call a yeshiva because it's they still learn it's a yeshiva. So, you know, the Palestinians submitted a petition saying, you know, it, it was evicted, but we can't access our lands because there is an outpost there. Um, and this petition was ongoing and I have been following it for, you know, a couple of years now. And until very recently, it seemed like it had like a good chance because, you know, private lands, there's construction there, you know, there's a law in play. I mean, it all, I mean, it made sense for it to, to, to be successful, actually. But then this government was formed and what they started quickly doing is trying to uh, change the situation on the ground so the petition won't stand a chance. And again, I will have to say, it's true that the situation now changed, but the outpost has been there for years and years. While Israeli authorities every few months did evict there, until the murder of Yehuda Dimentman, who's a seller, who was a student in the yeshiva, I think it was about two years ago. Then Benny Gantz, who was the defense minister, actually stopped evicting. But anyway, <laughs> what they did is first change the law so that legally Israelis can enter these areas. And it's not only, not only Chomesh, but the other settlements that were evicted as well. And then the next thing they did, because that wasn't, wasn't enough, because the outpost was still on private Palestinian land, what they did was, so Chomesh is on a hill, and most of the hill is private Palestinian land. But within that hill, there are like four plots that are public land, what, sell, what sellers, Israelis, called state land. So what they started doing one day was basically, they started working the land to prepare it. And we knew that because I, I received like videos from s s a residents of Wolka saying, you know, there's like tractors here, like what, what's happening? And what we understood happened um, was that the military actually didn't want to let these buggers and tractors in because it's illegal. Uh, you know, not, I mean, construction work isn't allowed and it wasn't authorized. But then they received a lot of pressure, the military, from Bezalel Smotrich and from the defense minister, Yoav Gallant. 
And then at the end, basically what was done is that Yoav Gallant told the army, you know, let the tractors in, even though it's illegal. So at first they kind of like made a plot of land, you know, like flat. And then in the middle of one night, they got in caravans and basically moved the outpost from the private land into public land. In order to get a caravan in, they needed a permission. Again, the military commanders at first didn't want to give it because it's illegal. So politicians gave an order to the army to uh, enable illegal actions. You could look at the past and say Israel has been at best turning a blind eye, and I'm <laughs> being very generous, to a lot of illegal activity in the West Bank. But it's one thing when it's under the table. Now we are at a stage where it's all out in the open. It's even declared to the high court. And then <laughs> what happened was now the outpost, it's still illegal, but it's in you know process to legalize. It has started. And how many people are living there? Just a few, like um, at most like 40. But I actually, I wasn't there for a few. Two months. So but other people come to learn at the yeshiva? Yes, and today everybody comes there. I mean, it's not, I mean, you know, every, you, you could go there on a trip if you want, but I mean, because in the past you did, you, you, you know, you needed to get a permission. And actually, a few years back when I tried to go up there, there was no military there at the time because, you know, it was like illegal. And so I went there with a car, and a minute after I got there, a group of sellers, masked, came out with bats and with guns. <laughs> you didn't feel welcome. Well, I mean, when I got out, they saw I was a blonde Jewish woman. Then they actually said, it's fine, she's Jewish. It's fine, she's Jewish. And then I was like, okay. Then in court, the state goes and says to the court that Palestinians uh, shouldn't have a problem accessing their land. I mean, how can they come at that? The, the most recent thing, and I know it's a long story because it's the West Bank, everything is complicated. They were actually successful. Because the most recent development was that the high court uh, erased the petition saying that the situation on the ground changed so much and the structures are no longer on private land, but rather state land. Therefore, the petition as it is is no, no, no longer relevant. And the state claims that because there are no uh, construction on private land, now the Palestinians can access it, which is bullshit. <laughs> I mean, I want to ask like the judges, like, do, do you want me to take you on a trip there? Like, do you want to come see how it is? Because <laughs> sometimes like you see it at courts and, you know, you, you see the state making all of these statements. And you're like, if only the judges would have gone on the trip and now it's even legal they would see that it's impossible for Palestinians to go there. It's not, I mean, it's impossible. And they will never be able to access their land because now what will happen is it's still considered an outpost, but because it's on, it's on state land, legalizing will happen. And what we know happens is when a settlement, you know, when there's a settlement and around it there's private Palestinian land, Palestinians are not allowed to go there. They're allowed to go there at most two times a year, with coordination of the military, which very often doesn't help because they are still getting attacks. And that's it. Wow, Hagao, those are quite amazing stories you have to tell. <laughs> I want to ask you personally, you live in Tel Aviv. You travel every day, all the time, quite frequently between Tel Aviv and the West Bank. You live in your day-to-day -day life here 
and see how the fight, how the battle over these reforms, over the judicial overhaul, judicial coup, has taken all of the oxygen in the room in the public debate in Israel. And the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has basically been washed away only again when you say somebody is killed, when blood is spilled, when there's, you know, huge violence that you can't ignore, then it gets in the news. But the two issues are not unrelated, are they? And so I want to ask you about that, how they're interconnected. And in general, what is the mood of the Palestinians and Palestinian rights organizations when they look at what's going on in the streets of Israel, in the streets of Tel Aviv? I mean, they have never been such big fans of Israel's Supreme Court as upholding Palestinian human rights or their rights to land. So there they are watching people fight this fight in order to keep the Supreme Court strong. I'm interested in their perspective on that, in your perspective on that. And is there an appreciation that if the coup happens, if the judicial overhaul happens, things can get so much worse for them? Or do they feel so fed up with the status quo, as you have very accurately described it, that they just don't care what happens? So first of all, I will say um, that I think something interesting is happening uh, in the debate, the internal Israeli debate about uh, the occupation and especially settler violence, maybe not occupation, but more settler violence. Um, because I think that because this government is so invested in the settlements and because we have Itamar Ben-Gvir as the minister in charge of the police and he's, again, you know, uh, a person who was involved in incitement and defending Jewish terrorism and lives in Kiryat Arba. So I think we do see people making the connection. Again, I wouldn't say between the judicial overhaul and the occupation so much, but between cellular violence and cellular uh, interests and the judicial overall, or at least the government. And I think, you know, it's enough to say that the Friday killing of, of Kusai received much more attention than any similar incidents, because just a year ago I covered a very similar incident, actually, that ended in no indictments. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it didn't receive as much attention, and I think this event receives more attention because of the current government and because people are, you know, pissed at the government and are making the connection because it's so obvious, right? As far as uh, the Palestinian perspective on that, um, I will first of all say I don't know what is the, you know, Palestinian rights group uh, perspective on that. That's an interesting question, which I will actually you know, go on to ask people. I will say that most of the Palestinians that I speak with are... You know, yesterday I spoke to one of the relatives of, of Kusai, uh, the Palestinian who was uh, shot by the seller on Friday. Um, and I asked him, like, what does he think? Like, does he see any distinction between, you know, the current government and, you know, former governments? And he was like, it's Netanyahu today and it's Netanyahu yesterday. Like, it's the same thing. So I hear that perspective quite a lot. Sometimes when you speak to Palestinians, you know, they will tell you, you know, what's the difference between guns and between these people? Because actually the very high number of killed Palestinians started, you know, actually during, you know, what we call like the... The coalition of change. coalition of change. Not much uh, changed, huh? <laughs> so for them, I think to a certain extent, not much changed. But then, you know, a lot of people know who Ben Gvir is. 
uh, he's a household name and, you know, everybody knows that it's, you know, it's a very extreme government. Now, I have to say, like, I haven't heard a lot of debate. And again, I'm not talking here about like what the rights group think. We, I don't have an answer to that. Um, but the private Palestinians that I speak, speak with didn't speak much of the judicial overhaul. If you ask me about the, the connection on, you know, high court, I just mentioned the high court talking about Chomesh, right? And criticizing it quite heavily about, you know, how, it, how, how it's, how disconnected it is from the situation on the ground. And, uh, you know, very often, you know, the occupation is being um, legitimized in a way by the high court. And, you know, some of some people will actually say we need the high court because it is the best defense against uh, people being brought to The Hague. So, so I think, you know, the high court does have this role. At the same time, I think it is important to say that some very basic rights sometimes of Palestinians are being preserved by the high court. For example, there was a law that Smotrich tried to pass a couple of years ago that basically said that, you know, if, if an outpost or if construction was built on private Palestinian land, it can be legalized. And it's basically a law that was like disregarded completely the right to private property. So actually the court did strike that law down. So of course, when you ask Smotrich or, 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 the, or the seller organizations, when talking about why the high court should change, they will, you know, name this law, the fact that they strike this law down because it makes legalizing outposts difficult slash impossible. And they will... Uh, name, you know, certain decisions to evict settlers that were built on private land. So, of course, the occupation is a motivation behind the judicial overhaul. That's not a secret. Again, all you need to do is look at the ads that are being, you know, published on the seller newspaper, Makorishon. <laughs> they, they say that. And, yeah, I mean, I think it's important to say that the high court very often legitimizes the occupation and but there are some incidents where it also struck down law that would have been you know completely disregarding again private property etc etc Hagar Shizaf West Bank correspondent for Haaretz thanks so much for coming on the podcast thank you very much And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. Thanks to Hagar Shazaf. Thanks to my producer and editor, Nara Malkin. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer, and until next week, shalom from Tel Aviv.